Hey, if you've got a Bible with you, would you turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 6? And if you are using one of the Red Pew Bibles, 2 Samuel chapter 6 is on page 147. 147. Um, we are we, we took a, a brief pause on our study through the life of David the last couple weeks, looking at the last week of Jesus. But we're returning now to David and We'll be here through the end of May, um, and then we're going to start a new series for the summer months, uh, which I'm excited for. Um, but we're back looking at the life of David, and since we last looked at him, a lot has changed. So King Saul has died in battle, and his son Jonathan has died with him. And that news has come to David, and uh, the southern territories anoint him as king over the southern territories and then they go up to the north and they rally around the northern kingdom and they likewise appoint David as king and so now in 2 Samuel chapter 6 David is king over all of Israel and one of his first actions as king that we're going to look at today is David is determined to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. He's made Jerusalem now the capital of Israel, and the first thing he wants to do is bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And as we look at this story, uh, if you want to follow along with notes in your bulletin, I've got three points. We're going to look at the hope of the Ark. We're going to look at the terror of the Ark and the good news of the ark. So we're going to look at the hope, the terror, and the good news. So would you um, follow along as I read 2 Samuel chapter 6. Uh, it's a fairly long chapter. We're going to read the whole thing. Um, and there's a lot in here. There's a lot that I'm not going to say. Uh, but if there's other questions that you have, feel free to ask me afterward. There's things I just don't have time to cover in this chapter. Uh, starting at verse 1, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from uh, Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab which was on the hill, and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, they were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and the place is called Perez Uzzah to this day, and David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, 
And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. And it was told King David that the Lord has blessed the house, household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all of his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. They were married, by the way. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to their own house. David returned to bless his household, but Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all of his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes, but by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, all of your word, even difficult and challenging passages like this. We pray, Lord, that you would um, use this text to reveal yourself more clearly to us, and may we find grace through this story, the grace of Jesus in whose name we pray, amen. All right, first, we're going to look at the hope of the ark. David, we read, has consulted with his men, and he's determined now to bring the ark of the covenant to Jerusalem. So he dispatches 30,000 troops to go with him. They go down to this town, Baal Judah. They retrieve the ark of the covenant that has been neglected here in this town for decades in the uh, accompanying story in First Chronicles, um, we read that Saul did not seek the ark. But now that King David reigned, they sought the ark. King David wants the ark. And this is his first thing that he does as king. It's a top priority. He wants to bring the ark to Jerusalem. Why? Why, why is this so important? What is the Ark of the Covenant? Why does David want it in Jerusalem so bad? The Ark, if you uh, don't know, is this 
It was a pretty large box, and uh, it was covered in gold on the outside and the inside, and um, God had instructed Moses to build the ark. Back, remember, Moses went up on the mountain in Exodus and received the law of God, the Ten Commandments. He gave that to the Israelites. It was in that event, when Moses was on the mountain with God, that God told Moses, build the ark of the covenant. Construct it in this way. Make it a box this long and this deep and this high. Put hoops on the edges and run poles through them so that when you move it, the the Levites, the priests, can carry it on poles. Cover it with gold and with a lid on top. And on top of the lids, carve two cherubim or angels. And the wings uh, make this canopy space on the top of the ark. And God said, it is there in the ark between the angels that I will meet with you. This was so special. This was so unique. And so Moses was told to also build this tent called the tabernacle. And this tent in the, the innermost chamber of the tabernacle, the chamber of secrets. No, I'm just kidding. The holy of holies, the innermost chamber of the tent, this is where the Ark of the Covenant was supposed to be, hidden behind the curtain so that no one could even approach it, except Aaron, the high priest. And and he only once a year could go in and gaze upon the glory of God. But it was this Ark of the Covenant that signified to God's people the very presence and glory of God. It was there that God could be met, that you could go and approach God and his glory. This is why David wanted the ark so bad. It's because in the ark, at the ark, this is where God could be found. David wanted God to be in Jerusalem, the center of the country. David wanted to be close to God. David wanted to be near him. The hope of the ark is that God can be known. In the next chapter, next week, we're going to look at once the ark actually arrives in Jerusalem, David's next step is, I want to build a temple for the ark, not a tent. I want to build a temple, and he calls it a house for the Lord. David wants God to move in next door so that he can know him and be close to him and draw near to him. Do you know your neighbor like that? Knowing someone is is complex. It's not quick. It takes time to get to know someone. It's not like getting to know something abstract like a language. You can pick up a book and study and practice and know a language. It's hard, but you can do it. Knowing something abstract like that, it's not like knowing a living being. Um, You can know a living being only when you spend time with them and get to know their personality and their history, how how they behave in certain circumstances. All living beings are like this. If you're ever at a a park with your kids or out on a walk and someone's walking and they've got a dog, you don't know in that moment whether that dog is a friendly dog or not because you don't know that dog. Uh, But our neighbors have a dog, Benny, and if you've been over at our house with our kids, you know about Benny because our kids love Benny. 
and we've now lived with Benny next door for a year and a half. We know what Benny is like. I have no fear allowing my kids to run up and pet Benny because I know Benny. But knowing a person is harder and more complex than knowing a dog because knowing a person, not only do you need to know their history, their past, their personality, how they behave in certain situations. A person also has dreams, aspirations that influence who they are. A, a person has hurts and traumas that add to who they are. A person has secrets that they either hold close to themselves or they let people in to know. The, the unique thing about knowing a person that's different than knowing anything else is that your ability to know that person is largely dependent upon how much that person wants you to know them. How much that person is willing to say, come close, draw near, this is who I am. I love how um, J.I. Packer says this in his book, Knowing God. He says, imagine for a moment uh, that you are going to be introduced to someone whom we feel to be above us, whether in rank or intellectual distinction or professional skill, the more conscious we are of our own inferiority, the more we shall feel that our part in this meeting is simply to attend to this person respectfully and let him or her take the initiative in that conversation. We dare not approach them. We would like to get to know this person, however, but we realize that this is a matter for him to decide, not us. If he confines himself to courteous formalities with us, we may be disappointed. We do not feel uh, able to complain. After all, we have no claim on this relationship. But if instead he starts at once to take us into his confidence and tells us frankly what is in his mind on matters of concern, and if he goes on to invite us to join him in particular undertakings that he has planned and asks us to make ourselves permanently available to him for this kind of collaboration, then we shall feel enormously privileged. It'll make a world of difference to our general outlook on life. He goes on to say, now this, so far as it goes, is an illustration of what it means to know God. He has pulled us close and has revealed himself to us. God says through Jeremiah the prophet, let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows the Lord. The hope of the ark is that we can know God. He wants us to know him. And not just know things about him, but know him as a person. Do you know God in that way? Do you, like David, long to be closer and closer to God, to know him more deeply, that God would occupy the center of your life? The hope of the ark for David was that God was going to be available, accessible, and approachable. God does not change, and his desire is still the same for us today that we would know him. That's the hope of the ark that we see here. 
that God wants to be known and has made himself known, his presence known. But this story is not all hopeful. In fact, it's a terrifying story. Let's turn now and and ask, what is the terror of the ark? This is a challenging story. This is the kind of story that people look to and say, see, this is why I'm not a Christian. This is the kind of story that says, this is the kind of God that you teach? No way, Jose. I do not want to worship a God of wrath and vengeance and hatred and anger. This is a challenging text. So let's look at it carefully. This is the story. They're marching along. They're carrying the ark on a, uh, on a cart. Uzzah and Ahiho, uh, they're carrying the ark. The ark, and they get to a certain place, and one of the oxen stumbles and, and begins to fall, and the cart tips, and the ark is about to hit the ground, but Uzzah thankfully reaches out to protect the ark, and as soon as he touches it, immediately, God strikes him dead. What gives? Right? I think there are two ways that we can look at this passage. The first, and this is how most commentators look at this passage. They say, well, when God gave the ark to Moses, when he told him how to build it, he also gave them regulations about how to carry it, how to approach it, how to do anything with it. And he said, hey, if you are going to move the ark, carry it by the poles, And if you're going to approach the ark and move it, it better be moved by Levites. And you better not touch it. Cover it with a blanket so that no one touches it. So the commentators read this and say, see, look, Uzzah and David have no regard for the rules and regulations that God has set up about worship. Therefore, God is justified to kill him. The other way of looking at the passage is saying, what's going on? Like, wasn't Uzzah just trying to be helpful? Wasn't his heart in the right place? Like, he saw this glorious thing of worship and thought, oh my gosh, I have to protect it. Wasn't he being genuine in his job to help the ark? Who cares about rituals when the heart is in the right place, right? Didn't we read earlier that God doesn't look at the outward appearance of a man, but the Lord looks at the heart? Wasn't Uzzah's heart in the right place? I think that, I think that we tend to read this passage in, in either of those ways. And when we do, when we look at the passage like that, we, we get really close to it. And we parse out all the details and when we, we, when we get up close to that, I think that we miss the forest for the trees. I think that we get so uh, crucial about the rules and regulations that we miss the bigger picture that God is trying to show us. Not that we shouldn't care about the regulations and rules, but that we miss the bigger picture that God is trying to show us. And we do this not just in this story, but even the whole book of Leviticus. I'm, I'm about finished with it in my uh, yearly Bible reading plan, and I was reminded again and again just how boring and hard that book is. 
Like, it is repetitive about who's clean and who's not clean and who's holy and who's not holy. And you have to bring this sacrifice here and kill it that way and do this with that blood and on and on and on and on again. We can get so obsessed with the details of it. But when we get up close, we miss the forest for the trees. I love how one of my seminary professors and, um, said about Leviticus and his commentary that he wrote about it. He says, all of these laws related to ritual states and purity and holiness and regulations, they are all strokes of a pen which God is using to underline again and again and again this one sentence, the Lord is holy. The Lord is holy. All of those regulations, all of those rituals are serving the point of making sure that we know the Lord is holy. This is the terror of the ark. It is such a tangible reminder to us, the Lord is holy and we are not in fact, we, before his holiness, are sinners. We dare not approach God in our sinful state of being. This was Uzzah's and David's mistake. They did not treat their sin seriously enough. To say that the Lord is holy It's to say that he is set apart by his nature. He is other than us. In his sovereign power and in his moral purity, he is so far above and beyond us. And to say that we are sinners is is not just to say that we don't measure up to his standard, although that's true. It is to say that we have utterly missed the mark of his standard. We're not even playing the same game. The Lord is holy and we are not. We don't take our sin seriously enough. That's what this story reminds us. We don't take our sin serious. I I think we need to be more aware of who we are and what we're capable of doing. Like, we had a really hard weekend with our kids, and my voice reached a level that I didn't previously know it could reach. Do you know what you're capable of? That maybe you're not doing that now, but maybe you could. I don't think we understand the dangerous, slippery slope of our sin and how one thing can lead to another and another and another and snowball out of control. In one of my pastoral counseling classes that taught us how uh, we can sit down with men and women and hear their stories and pray for them and care for them and shepherd them and counsel them, we read this book called Close Calls. And it was a a book filled with story after story of men and women who ended up in affairs, destroying their marriages. They had no idea they were capable of doing that. 
Because after one close call after another, after a lingering stare, after a quick daydream, one small decision after another snowballed into the destructive power of sin. They had no idea that they were capable of that. Are you aware of just how dangerous our sin is? No wonder Jesus taught us that if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is far better for you to enter the kingdom of God without an eye and without a hand than for you to experience the torment of the suffering of your sins forever. Jesus is asking, do you take your sin seriously? Every week, we pray a prayer of confession. And I hope that in doing that week after week after week, that I am giving us words that you can take home with you. Whether memorized in your head and heart or tangibly take this bulletin home, use those words to direct your confession of sin. Take it seriously. I hope that we're offering you words so that in those moments of temptation or in those moments of failure, in those moments when your secrets catch up to you, in those moments when your conscience calls you to account, do you have words in your heart that direct your confession to the Lord? The hope of the ark is that God wants us to know him and has made himself available to us. But the terror of the ark is that he is too holy and we are so sinful. David, I think, begins to realize that's true about him when he says in verse 9, how in the world can the ark of the Lord come to me? He knows that he isn't worthy anymore. He knows that he is sinful, that God is holy. He wants to know God. He knows his sin, though, is keeping him from God. And so they leave the ark at a house, the home of Obed-Edom. They leave it there for three months. David doesn't know what to do. Let's pick up the story in verse 12 and see, is there any good news of the ark left for us. Three months have passed and David learns that in these three months, the ark of the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom. And David says to himself, I can't live now without this blessing of the Lord. I need God's presence with me. And so he determines to finish the plan. He goes out to Obed-Edom's house and he brings the ark back home. I don't know what happened. Maybe David's desire for the ark compelled him to open up his Bible, but he learned how to do it the right way. We read in 1 Chronicles 15, the parallel account, that he brought down Levites to join him in the procession. That he brought the poles to carry the ark, not on an ox cart, but on the poles carried by the Levites. He's doing it the right way. And they're about to set out, and then they stop. He, he asks to ask the question, how is this possible? This is the question that really uh, flows through the entire Old Testament. How in the world, if God is so holy, 
And if mankind is so sinful, how can the holy and pure and powerful king of the universe dwell in our midst? How can he do that without his holiness melting us away? The answer, he realizes, is sacrifice. He knows that there is atonement provided. David is learning that when God instructed Moses to build the tabernacle and build the ark and uh, put it in there, he was told one more thing. Before the tent, in front of the ark, you have to build an altar so that when you look at the ark of the covenant and your heart is drawn to the Lord and you want him to be with you and you want to draw close to him, the only way for you to draw close to God's presence is by first going to the altar of sacrifice. David understands this. So even after five steps on their journey, on the sixth step, David says, stop, wait, we have to offer a sacrifice. David understands that the only way to God was through a sacrifice. When all of this was up and running, when the altar was before the tent, The ark was in the tent. The people gathered to draw near to God. This is how it was to happen. Aaron, the high priest, would would take the burnt offering. He would put it on the altar and slaughter it, offering it with his hands on the sacrifice, saying, my sins are now imputed and transferred onto this sacrifice. And then he would take the blood of the sacrifice and sprinkle it on himself, saying, the purity and holiness of this sacrifice now covers me. And because his sins had transferred to the sacrifice, and because the blood of the sacrifice now purified him, he could walk into the tent behind the curtain and come to the Lord. David knows that the only way for God to dwell in his midst is for there to be sacrifice. I love how when we get to the New Testament, this is exactly how the authors understood what Jesus was doing for us. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 10. He says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Jesus came into this world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me, Then he said, I have come to do your will, O God. The author concludes and says, by that will, we have been made holy through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. Jesus is our sacrifice. Upon him were our sins. Our sins have been transferred to him, the one who offered up himself in our place to die upon the altar of the cross. And by his blood poured out, we have been sprinkled clean. Our sins have been washed away. We are now, through Christ, made holy and enabled to draw near to God and know him. David began to know that truth. And as they marched along, David dances with joy, celebrates. He he takes off his royal garments, and he dances to the music. His wife, Michael, looks from afar, embarrassed, believing him to make a fool of himself. 
he doesn't, she doesn't like it. But when David comes home, he says to her, it was before the Lord's face that I was dancing. God has chosen me over your father, over all of his house to appoint me prince over Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. Yes, I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. I might be abased in your eyes, but before the eyes of my countrymen, I will receive honor. David did not care what everyone else thought about him because he understood in that moment that he had access to God, that God's face was towards him, that he was welcomed into the presence of God, not because of anything he could do or, or, or cover up or accomplish himself, but solely by the sacrifice of another. God welcomed him. David didn't care whatever people thought about him. This is the joy that we have. The good news of the ark is that God welcomes us to himself through Jesus. And when we have that, it doesn't matter what other people think of you. We've talked about this before at church. I want to just reiterate it. One of our values is to be real. To be real before the Lord. To be real before one another. To be real is to say, the blood of Jesus cleanses me from my sin. I am welcomed into the presence of God, and I can dance before him. I don't have to cover up my sin. I don't have to hide in my shame. I can be real with one another because it doesn't matter anymore. I am washed clean by the blood of Christ. I am made holy. There is no terror left for me in approaching God. Friends, this is our hope, that we would be a community that embodies this truth, that we gather together in the name of the Lord Jesus, covered in his blood, welcomed into the presence of God. That's yours through Jesus. Let's pray.